We're back with uh, another episode yes. of Gavin Jules Meets. Now, this is a show where Jules and I have conversations yeah. with people who we think are interesting. Right, Jules? Exactly. Yeah. In the world of football. Right? Yeah, exactly. Different yeah. profiles. We've had former players, current players. Not just execs. former players. We had Zlatan. Uh, we had, a, sorry. Yeah. Both a former player and a current player, some might say. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm, this time we've got something that's a bit different because this is somebody who did not play professional football. And this is somebody who was in the right place at the right time, carpe diemed the situation. Yes, exactly. And became a super influential person um, running football operations. Hey, I'm Mike Ford. I come from working 25 years in this professional sports industry spanning US and European sports. All right, Mike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick you off just with, with your story because uh, you were not. Uh, I'm sure you were a fine footballer in your youth, but you were never uh, a professional uh, footballer. Um, and yet you got to work, but you started in professional football and then moved out across other sports as well. I think a lot of people who know they're not going to be pursuing that uh, professional sports career would love to have a gig like the ones you've had or, or the ones you have now. So, could you tell us a little bit about your story? Because I'm assuming a lot of it often has to do with being in the right place at the right time, as well as being uh, good at good at what you do. Yeah, no, listen, I would always put a tremendous amount of uh, credit to the people that give you a chance at any sort of career. So you're right, Gabs. I, I was probably one of the first of a generation that came into professional football that wasn't an ex-player and came into what we'd call the front office and that. So I uh, trained as a sports scientist, uh, moved into trains as a sports psychologist, and I got introduced via a company of, I was working with uh, to Bolton. And Sam Allais had just taken the job. This is the late 90s, uh, the job at Bolton. And one of the first conversations I had with him, uh, and again, I was only in my early 20s himself, he said, listen, I'm not sure of the value of this, but he said, I spent a year at Tampa Bay and uh, Rowdy's. And he said, you know, I used to go to, uh, we used to go to the party of the sports psychologist all the time. And we all kind of bought into what he was doing because he had this amazing house on the ocean and he held his biggest party. So he said, I'm not expecting you to have an amazing house on the ocean, <laughs> but I'm going to give you a shout. And uh, so Sam was a, was a great sponsor. This is again, late nineties. And at the time it was one of them perfect storms gaps. You know, the premier league was probably six or seven years old in its form after David Dean and that group had had the vision to transform it from what it was. Uh, and it was one of them perfect things, totally out of your control. You know, the, the, the right club at the right time, looking for a competitive advantage with the right ownership. Uh, the late Phil Gart side who deserves a, a tremendous amount of credit too, was the chairman at the time. Uh, and, and I was there just at the right time. You know, it was one of the things we were in the championship. There was a, it's trendy now to talk about marginal gains, right? But back in the day, it was like, how do we do things different? And uh, Sam was, uh, Sam had the, the vision and the foresight to drive that. And, you know, I was fortunate at the time to be one of a select group of staff with a particular focus to help him achieve that. So that was my entry point. Because yeah. we see we see Sam now a bit as a dinosaur, right? And and probably the wrong image. But back then, he was quite innovative. He was very, I think he was very innovative at the time. If you go back to what was the state of the nation, I read some stat that the first day of the Premier League in its current format, which was maybe 91, 92, I think there was 11 foreign players. Uh, and Sam was, you know, built a squad, a roster, 
where he embraced the uh, the players who were on the edges. So I go back to some of the first players we had the fortune of signing. Yuri Jorkaev won the yeah. World Cup with France in '98. Been uh, cast aside at Kaiserslautern, was training on his own. Some of the foresight to bring him in in January 2002. I remember I was flying to Germany to sort of convince to, to, to come. He was. 6% body fat. Everyone said, don't touch him. This guy's a nightmare. This guy's a mess. And he was transformational. And Sam had several of them players through his career. Fernando Hierro, JJ Kocher and that. And his sort of raising debtor at the time was, how do we get uh, how do we get the marginal gains out of these players? Everyone has cast them aside. How do we get them physically, mentally, emotionally back on track? And that return and that culture that was created as a function of that allowed him to do. So was it anything that was innovative? Probably not. But the aggregation of all of them practices, Jules, was the thing that made him innovative. Yeah. Really and, interesting. And you were attracting all these guys who were big stars, presumably were financially well off. You were attracting them, when, I say this with the greatest respect, to Bolton. I mean, I remember at the time, people talked about the lure of London and players wanting to come to Chelsea and Arsenal and, and okay, if you play for Liverpool or United, those are massive historic clubs. Bolton is is none of that it's what is it? it's basically suburban manchester yeah absolutely so that you know they didn't have the pull of the chelsea with you know but it was the late and great Gianluca Vialli going there in the late 90s with Ruud Pollitt etc there's none of that Deschamps going there there was no or of association of playing in the marketplace but what was uh, what was part of the competitive advantage was how do we create an environment where players who uh, had maybe been mistreated, uh, you know, gone off on their own in a different direction. And uh, I don't create a home for them uh, and allow them to feel special. So the environment, the physical environment might not be the place, but the culture was something that we focused on a, on a daily basis. And, uh, and, you know, one of them, uh, one of them businesses where when you don't have a dollar, a euro, a pound, you have to spend every dollar twice. You start getting creative about how you get competitive advantage. When you start as a as a, as a sports psychologist at, at Bolton, at some point was the ambition to go and and get to a top top club and and run it, or did you, as you were learning the trade, as you were learning more and more about how football clubs work, football teams, managers, players, agent, all of that, did you think, do you know what, I, I I could do this because I'm smart enough, I, I I've got good social skills, I've got this, I've got that, or did you almost fall upon you a little bit at some point. Yeah, well, I'm certainly not smart enough. So we see the talent and I won the race. But I, I would say, uh, you know, probably for the first 10 years of my career and you asked about career, I was telling my parents every six months I'm going to get a real job. <laughs> there was no proxies in the market, guys. You know, I, I the, the peop, there was no general manager, sporting directors. It was a head coach, you know, when I first started out, it was like the, the CEO, maybe the head coach or the manager, obviously in, in, in English football. And the chairman would have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea on a Friday at three o'clock and do all business then, right? <laughs> so there was no systems, processes, structures, scenario planning. There was none of that, right? And then what happened, I think, you know, with the B Sky B, with the change of the Premier League, it allowed uh, – people like me who were naturally would never have gone opportunity or to interfere with the process. Right. So when you start growing the business and the market became different, you know, for the, the portability of talent between players, between different leagues coming into the Premier League, the Premier League was growing in its financial strength, coaches coming up. Now, now that now the jigsaw is getting a bit more complicated, uh, but at the heart of it, it's still about a head coach and a manager and a group of players. But, 
you know, I was I, I came in as part of the first group of ologists, you know, psychologists, physiologists, etc., and that that were trying to drive better performance out of these assets and that really. So I, I always I always built my career around uh, you know, stay curious and be a problem solver. And if you if you if you meditate on those two things, I think opportunity will find you. If you're in pursuit, and I was never in pursuit of a job title, I was in pursuit of an experience. And I was fortunate over them 15 years, whether it was the growth of the bone story, whether it was the growth, stabilization, internationalization of Chelsea as a brand in the in the early first 10 years of Mr. Abranovich's tenure and Chelsea's growth. They were all about problem solving. And if you were curious to solve problems and you, you had an open mindset and a learning mindset, you went out and found it. And I, I'll give you a quick story. I remember we were we were looking at uh, player acquisition and analytics was st- starting to come into place. Maybe this is 2004, guys, 2005. Uh, and I remember finishing the, game, the season at Bolton. And the next morning, I got on a flight to the US and I visited 10 teams in 14 days. Straight out of my own pocket, flying economy, uh, knocking on doors, just just like I'm here to learn. And I met some of some incredible people that went on to change US sport. But it starts in that mindset of we are in an industry that's growing and I've got to be here to solve problems that are of no value. And I still think that whether it's a 23-year-old trying to break into the industry now, Gab, as you mentioned to me before, or someone who's trying to grow, if you're a problem solver, you're curious, you bring in a learning mindset, there'll always be a home for you. Because this is a dynamic industry that we choose to work in, and football is one of the most dynamic. So you go from there, you move on to a completely different scenario because Roman Abramovich is not Phil Gartside, Chelsea's <laughs> not Bolton, the scenario's different. You weren't looking for, you know, money ball cast off players who might make it big. You're looking to you're still looking for value, of course, you'll tell me, but you're looking to take Chelsea to the next level. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, we built on that every dollar, spend every dollar twice type model, uh, Gabs, but I, I still think if you go back to that era, and I'll use the proxy of uh, Billy Beam, I was with Billy Beam in maybe 2005. True story, and I'm with him for a couple of days. Fantastic guy, it was transformational in what he did with Moneyball and obviously Michael Lewis's story around it. And, uh, I'm leaving the, the stadium after spending two days. And I said, listen, full disclosure, I feel bad about this, but I need to tell you, uh, I'm flying to see the Red Sox now. And uh, I've got an introduction. I'm going to spend a couple of days with them. I just don't, I just don't feel, I feel like I need to tell you that because we've spent two good days. They said, no, the Red Sox guys, and it was Theo Epstein who was running the team at the time, with Jed Hoyer, who's now the Cubs uh, president of uh, baseball. They said, Mike, they're, they're, they're brilliant, those guys. He said, they're the worst evil. And I was like, what do you mean the worst evil? <laughs> He said they've got they've got money and intelligence. Here we're trying to just work with intelligence, right? But we haven't got <laughs> money. And I, so I remember, I never, I never forget. I got on the flight and I flew over to see them. And I actually two days of them. And I told Jed, who's still a very good friend of mine, and uh, and he started laughing and that. And, and it was that sentiment when I when I had the privilege of uh, getting to Chelsea, met Roland Branovich, Scarford an opportunity to be part of that very talented management team with Jose Mourinho was there the first time, Peter Kenya and Frank Carnison. It was a very talented group. So a young guy in his early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, it was a wonderful opportunity to learn. And I carried that sentiment. How do we keep this sort of uh, spend every dollar twice, 
marginal gains, whatever the terminology is, and apply it where there's opportunity to grow. And I think that was when I met actually Roman for the first time, we, we talked in, in great detail about how do we live with this opportunity of growth, but also still apply some of these principles. It's very hard when you're racing to win all the time uh, to stay true to your principles. But that was a sentiment of my engagement and my entry point into shelter. That's kind of the remarkable thing about it, which I think viewed from the outside, we don't always we don't always understand is. So you arrive there in, in, in 2006. Chelsea would go on to have, you know, a, a, an all-star cast of, of, of managers from, you mentioned Mourinho, but obviously uh, Scolari, uh, Carlo Ancelotti a few years later, you know, others after you moved on. Um, and people often mock the fact that, oh, look, they only last a couple of years, trigger happy Abramovich, player revolt, blah, blah, blah. But the team kept winning throughout that. And in my mind, I'm not saying coaches and managers aren't vitally important, but it also struck me as if they keep changing this, maybe the stability of the coach is not as important as the stability of the club, of the culture around it, of the systems that are in place. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. You know, I remember uh, one of the first times I was with Sam talking about uh, squads and he's like, you know, you want to be a good coach, get good players. You want to be a great coach, get great players. And I never really understood it until you went through. And I, and I, the first part of my time inside teams, I had one coach for seven years and I had nine coaches in seven years in the second half of it. So you really get to see, okay, you know, how, what is the impact on the, of, of the coach on, on, on success? And, and there's no doubt there is a part of it, but it's the right coach at the right time. I think that's why when I look back and we, you know, in our, day-to-day business now and, you know, driven by some very talented business people inside Sportsology Group, you start to really understand, like, there's many ways to thread the needle, Gabs, uh, in terms of success. And we all, we were brought up with a understanding of these poster childs of, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson or a Belichick or a Joe Torrey, depending on what story it is. But now the world has changed where the influence of fans even more, the media, et cetera, that, that time to success is concertinaed in a, in a negative way, in my view, that the time to deliver has gone down. So the paradigm shifted during my, my time. And I think it, you're right, it was uh, cast aside because, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson didn't retire until he was 2013. So you'd see this North Star of stability, Arsene Wenger, this North Star of stability. And all the time you were changing. I still go back to... It's all about the players. At the end of the day, you know, in that during that time, we had probably ten of the best players in the world in their position. Uh, I remember an agent coming to see me one day and asked about a young player. Why wasn't he breaking into the team? He's the best under nineteen in this position in Europe. He's been voted this, and I was like, because in his position is Frank Lampard. And he's the guest best guy in the world in that position of any age, right? <laughs> so you go back to you know, if you land the plane on a successful squad design, roster build, maintenance, squad management, etc. The coach is important, but it's less important. Uh, I think when you're in a turnaround project and you need to change the identity of the team, like what Manchester United have gone through, have gone through in the last 12 months, I think the coach plays an over-indexed uh, 
in a positive way impact on the culture. But for example, when you're when you're in charge like you were at Chelsea, and then the decision is made that the manager has to move, there must be times or managers with whom you had you felt closer maybe to others. And is that difficult to see him go, even if if he had to go, for example? And how what's your mindset when then someone else comes in the door, and you obviously have to learn again to work with him, learn again about why he likes, doesn't like, etc. And then you have to do it again once he goes. How? What kind of mindset is that when you're when you're running a football club as big as Chelsea Football Club? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great question. You know, there's, a, there's a there's a very popular historical quote that goes, you know, the owner doesn't fire the the coach, the players do. The the owner just tells him he's leaving. And I think <laughs> you know, the, a, a lot of the time, the owners get pressed that uh, they jumped in too quickly or they're trigger happy or not. But often, like ultimately, you know, if you look at a, a football team in, in Europe for the sake of this discussion, 85% of the revenue is spent on 2.5% of the workforce, right, which is the players. So those players have an over-indexed impact on outcome on so many different levels. So they are your ultimate net promoter of whether the project is working or not, the team is working or the roster is working. And the key is, like, how, how do you manage that 360 dialogue with the players in this case and then decide upon when is the right time to either to double down on a coach or to move past it. And I would say, you know, it's 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 more art than science, guys. Uh, but invariably, when I look back at that era, there was probably one or two coaches that we let go too quickly. Uh, there was one or two that we let at the right time, the end of their project. Uh, and there was one or two that stayed the perfect amount of time. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million dollar stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Gab Jewels, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash G A B J U L S now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Gab Jewels. Jules, what I find fascinating here is that you're director of football operations at Chelsea between 2006 and 2012, right? Yeah. Which is kind of like that it's a long time heyday, right? It's, yeah. yeah, it's a long time. This is the period they reach a Champions League final. Uh, they win. It's the end of the Mourinho era. They yeah. win a title with with Carlo Ancelotti. They win. They win European silver. Um, and you always talk here about the importance of stability and all this stuff. How does he actually feel about the ones who were sacked? Because there was a huge turnover of coaches and maybe the ones who maybe should have stuck around longer. Yeah, and also, as we know, Chelsea maybe had a different approach. Certainly Roman Abramovich at the time to what other clubs would have done. So it was really interesting. And I think that that led us to ask him, like, what was the, the best thing and what was the worst thing in being in charge of managing a club like Chelsea? 
you know, managing expectations as you go through that growth journey, I think, is a really important thing. So there was existential moments where, you know, a coach walks out of the building and you think, wow, we could have got another year out of this person and I won't go into which ones. And then you look at the stability of other organizations and you go like, wow, some, some days I wish we were like them. All right. But then your learning comes from from the moments of growth. So when a new coach or a new management team comes in, you are constantly trying to uh, find new ways of working. So no major problems. I think uh, managing expectations, uh, particularly from a dynamic owner who wants to win everything. And, you know, I, I always sort of reference this uh I remember when Chelsea won the Champions League and uh, in, in Munich for the first time and I'm coming down into the dressing room and behind, uh, there's only one person behind me, it's Didier Drogba with the trophy, right? <laughs> so he walks in and he puts the trophy down in the middle of the table and everyone's singing and dancing and, you know, his laughing is maybe, you know, 25 players and 15 staff. It's one of them special moments that you look back even even now and go, that, that, they, these are moments in your life and that. Anyway, in the... Uh, in this in the situation, one one of the staff, senior staff, says to the owner, uh, "You need to say something. You need to say something." And uh, so, anyway, he, he he speaks up the owner and he says, uh, "Fantastic night, great. Thank you for everything that you've done. This is a special moment for the club, etc." I uh, just have one last thing to say. Just make sure it's not the last time we're here. And it was one of them moments where you think you hear about. I remember being with Phil Jackson from the Lakers years ago. And he said to me, uh, the best thing about winning is not losing. And when you realise at the top of these clubs, whether it's the top of Premier League football or Champions League, you know, the NFL, etc., the drive at these top clubs is when you win, it just usually brings relief. And that's tiring after a while because you think, I want to be a part of something where I actually enjoy it uh, and not feel relieved. So immediately after winning... So what you're saying, and we can broaden this out to successful coaches and teams, and we'll get to the ones you've worked with in, in the U.S. as well, but the mindset, and maybe it's universal in sport. I mean, maybe it's Serena Williams and Lewis Hamilton as well. You won, and immediately your priority is to win again because you're scared of then losing after winning. Does that make sense? Is that the mentality these people have? Yeah, I, I think I think so. You know, it's uh, you may you asked me a question before about the transition of a club like Bolton to Chelsea. So you know, at, at Bolton, you know, you were, every five games you'd sit the players in the dressing room and say, you know, you give them a dressing down. Hey, listen, guys, you know, you're getting sloppy. You're turning up late for practice. You know, you're doing this. You know, and it was all about sort of behaviour based around winning. That you realise that the product in a club like that is you have to stay on top of it all the time to get to get the most out of it. And then uh, after about three or four months in Chelsea, one of the uh, directors said to me, you know, what's the difference between what you've experienced in eight years at Bolton and what you've seen Chelsea to start with? And I was like, we never talk about the things about, you know, personal motivation, drive, energy. It's just there. Like at this level, it's just there. And, you know, there's a there's a great saying, you know, your job at the very top is not to motivate the talent, it's to not demotivate them. So that's part of it. It's like, how do we create an environment where they can aspire to be? And if they're, they're co-creators of that, that experience with it. And, you know, when I look back at my career, some of the mindset I enjoy today came from them experiences, Frank Lampard, Michael Ballack, Didier Drogba, uh, PHA, who just had this constant drive to, 
to win it. And there's four trophies every year and he might win two of them, but they'll remember the two they lost. Uh, so I think it's a DNA thing. Do you think they've got that in them? It's not something, if you don't have that in you, and yeah, at some point when you get to a certain great level, you can think, yeah, of course I want to win. It's good to win, but you might have not that in you as in like the hatred of losing, for example, like some of the great guys you mentioned. You think they really had them in them since a very young age? Yeah, I, th I think there's, there's ones where, and you can see them percolate uh, up at different times of year. I remember Yuri Jokic have saying to me, like, cup finals are the opening of champions. And it was like, you live for them, them moments. And, you know, there's moments where you drop off for him, but you're here for them moments and there's an intensity that comes with him. So is it a DNA thing? There's people smarter than me who've researched this. Do I think it's inherent in a lot of them? Yes. But do I think the environment, which is what we're really talking about here, can enforce that or can demotivate them? Absolutely. And I think when you're running a top club in any major sport, your job is not to demotivate the talent by creating an environment for them to achieve. And, and people often say, oh, you know, the, the when you're at the top with the best players in any major sport, it must be really difficult, big egos, etc. The very, very top talent, in my experience, of NFL, NBA, so they're really easy to deal with as long as you're putting the right challenge in front of them. It's the pretenders at the level below that cause the biggest problems. Yeah. The ones that are occasionally turning up and delivering something great, but have no consistency, no personal drive. Uh, they're your problematic talent. You've spent so many words about great players and people and stuff like that. What struck me is after you left Chelsea and, and other people in the industry, when, when they describe one of your strengths um, to me, and, and you can tell me if you agree with this, is you're really good at putting systems and processes into place that lead to better outcome. I know it sounds like management speak, but they said, like, you know, he's the org guy, you know, among other things, right? <laughs> uh, and it strikes me that you move on and you have Michael Eminalo, Marina, and for a while, and Chelsea keep winning. And, and Chelsea keep winning titles. I mean, I think after you left, Chelsea won another two or three titles. They obviously won, won the Champions League. Other than the year that Jose came back and they were on their way to relegation, you know, you didn't have too many disasters. Those, I'm not saying you need to take credit for stuff that came way after you, but when you look at what at how Chelsea operated after you left, did you feel like, okay, some of those things are the systems that, that we built together and they're still using them? Well, I think I, 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 I can't really answer entirely for that. But what I, will, what I will lend to, I think when you, you know, going through that era of change, so if you look at uh, Jose Mourinho and his first tenure at Chelsea after uh, Ranieri left and he came in after winning at Porto, you know, there was that period of stability and then there was a period of great instability from a head coach as a data point of head coaches. And when when there's instability, you have to try and put it in. I remember going to uh, to the board and saying, I was like, I made two or three coaches in and I said, you know, this is fine now if we keep changing coaches, but at some point we have to decide our DNA as a business. We, you know, we're not infinite anymore. The investment's here. We've got an opportunity. Selfishly, it was always my challenge was, you know, when you change a coach, it comes with three assistants, then you got, you know, change five other people, then he doesn't like the medical director, then he doesn't like the head of scouting and all that. So selfishly, I was then try trying to find 10 or 12 other people every time there was a change. So 
you know, what we decided, I think it was actually after Carlo Ancelotti won the title in that first year, did the double actually with a, that older group of players. Uh, it was like, why don't we try and capture and codify who we are? Okay, what's our DNA? You know, and everyone says it's a, a Manchester United way or a Chelsea way, but it's like, what is that operating model? So if we were sold tomorrow, ironically, several years later, and someone came in and said, like, how, what is the blueprint for success here? What, how does this system work? And we spent a year basically codifying what it was across all the areas. And there's some tremendous talent in there, Neil Bath at the academy level, uh, some very, very good operating people at heads of department. But it allowed the club to take a step back and say, this is how we function as a business in this next era of growth. Uh, and I think one of the biggest things was in the empowerment of the support staff to support whoever the coach was. Okay, uh, I think if you go back ten years ago, the average tenure of a coach, and then you go to now in the Premier League, it's halved. In, it's halved. If you go to any of the major sports in, you know, even the revered sports like the NFL, the NBA, etc., all of them sports now the average tenure is less than three years for a head coach. All right, so Chelsea were probably at the start of that revolution of uh, instability being actually the operational norm. Uh, so some of them practices I think were continued but I also think just the business as usual in the Premier League as, as one proxy uh, meant that you had to continue to build a business of which the coach was a part of it Before we move uh, maybe away from Chelsea just one on Mourinho because he's a fascinating character I think for a lot of us who, who know him a little bit know him a lot know him very very well so not, not as well as you do. What was your relationship with Jose? Because I think maybe of all the managers that you've worked with you or who you hired, he must have been maybe the most, um, I don't know, fasc fascinating maybe the word or challenging maybe or something. What, what, what kind of relationship and what can you tell us about Mourinho as a manager when you're his boss technically, really? The, the Chelsea of today, there's a huge part of that legacy that belongs to him and rightly so. Uh, I think when he came back the second time, which was towards the end of my tenure too, uh, I think he was the right coach at the right time. I know the year three phenomenon that gets well documented, but you know what he did in them first two years to bring stability back to the club, to bring a sense of direction, you know, to give a, a you know a stability also to the fan base, that was 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 exceptional in that really. So. I think he deserves a huge part of uh, in in the history of the Rona Branovic era, but also the modern Chelsea. But you know, he was a, he was incredible when he came into the Premier League. You know, I remember being in many games against him. Uh, thing, and no coach knew knew how to play against him. No coach knew how to do it, and he transformed preparation, attention to detail across the league, and that uh, that probably had not been seen since Arsene Wenger first came into the league. Uh, so he deserves a huge, you know, a huge credit uh, in the history of Chelsea for me. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Gab. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash Gab right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Gab. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So what gets me here in talking to Mike, Jules, is you know you can do it. You've had this really successful run yeah. at Chelsea, obviously before that, Bolt and whatnot. But where your way of working has generally worked, right? And and it's shown that, yes, the manager is super important at the club, culture, whatever, but the club is more important. Because whatever else people think about, you know, the Roman Abramovich era at Chelsea, they had a lot of money, but they also had a lot of managers who came and went, and they still won. So yeah. clearly it was the framework. What I find interesting is he knew that it worked in football, but can you translate that way of working, can you translate that core um, into a different sport mm. and even to a different country? And I think that's what pushed him to move to the U.S., to start his company, Sportsology, and to become a consultant for different clubs. And Already, I think, his rep had grown to the point that one of the very first clubs to hire him was a club which at the time, in the NBA, yeah. you're a big NBA fan, yeah. was pretty much the gold standard for how yeah. you should organize your club. And, and you that club was... The San Antonio Spurs, and you think like, well, really, they don't really need anybody else to tell them how to do things, considering how successful right. they've been. But I think very successful people always say... I'm going to sound like Mike Ford here, but <laughs> they have a growth mindset and they exactly. say, I can always learn more. Exactly. And even learn something from this strange little man with a strange northern accent. You mentioned San Antonio Spurs. R.C. Buford was a general manager president at the Spurs, been there for a long time, been a co-partner of Greg Popovich, who obviously is a, is a legendary coach in the world of basketball as equivalent to, for me, Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, uh, Belichick in that. And, uh, Actually, RC had got and I had got to know each other over the years. Part partly down to me traveling, him traveling. He had we were kindred spirits in the, you know, sharing ideas. You know, where do we get the next thing? Hey, I'm rebuilding the medical team. How should we do? I'm rebuilding the scouting team. So we had this sort of cross pollination of ideas way before we actually started working with him. So I put him as a a real sort of instigator of our of changing that. And uh, actually, caught when I left Chelsea, he called me three days later and he said, "Listen." Uh, uh, where are you now? I said, oh, I'm still in London. He said, would you come out to uh, Las Vegas? And I was like, for what? Like a party or whatever? He said, no, it's <laughs> the NBA Summer League. And uh, he said, I'd just love to sort of spitball some ideas. So I fly out. And uh, in that journey, they had just been beaten game five, I think it was, or six, I can't remember, uh, by the LeBron James Miami Heat. And he, the way he talked about it was like, you know, we're going to go through change and we've got to do this. I'm thinking, dude, like you've just been beat in the final. Like, what's the problem? You know, you've had 20 years of 50 plus wins, which is a gold standard in, in, in the NBA. And uh, it was a great sign of someone who was agitated to learn and grow. Back to that curiosity thing, Gabs. Yeah. So uh, he... He asked me and then subsequently the business to 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 do the following, which is to help him, you know, 
project a future. You know, there were some things in European sport that the American sports hadn't quite picked up, you know, a lot of stuff around uh, medical performance, uh, the use of play development, et cetera, that, you know, we have academies in, in, in European football from how do you develop young players and how do you bring them through a system. Uh, so I wasn't teaching him anything about winning. I wasn't teaching him anything about the NBA, but it was just a sounding board for new ideas. Uh, and there was also a possibility that Greg Popovich was, was going to leave at some point, you know, uh, which nine years later, he's still there doing a phenomenal mm-hmm. job. Uh, so succession planning was, was also on the agenda and that. Uh, and then from that sort of first tenure, this is the beauty of the North American market. I, I was in, I was based in New York, uh, and we're a hundred percent referral, you know, recommended us to two other teams. They did as one of them was actually the Philadelphia Eagles. Jeffrey Laurie and Harry Roseman had asked us to sort of do an organizational audit, bring us look at best practices. How he actually came through me, he's just been sadly beat in the Super Bowl a few weeks ago. Came with me yeah, to, we don't need to mention that. <laughs> Okay. And uh but so we were seen as a uh, independent voice that was across a number of different sort of sports with best the next practice ideas and you know the american market is uh, always looking for the next and best idea yeah. uh, and it's an outsourcing market by nature so i i, I want to kind of go to the core of this because that's one of the things that i find most interesting right so the nfl has has, has 32 32 teams um You've got the the NBA, you know, all roughly around the same amount. These are all people who know each other. It is the NBA slightly less so, and maybe the NHL slightly less so because they have European players. But these are closed systems, right? Nobody's going to develop, you know, some new play or some new uh, way of evaluating American football players in, in Korea that's going to become relevant in in the NFL. Um, and so that's what I find that's what I find really interesting is. You know, if you're not winning, right, you can either do what everybody else does and do it better, or you can do things differently. But I kind of find in American sports, there's a disincentive to that because you could add a third thing. You've got a salary cap. You've got the draft. You just wait a few years. Things are cyclical, and there's a good chance you'll be better, and then your fan base won't, you know, will be okay, and they'll still fill your stadium. You'll still make money. Am I being a too – is this an accurate picture of American sports where it really takes an outlier to go and do things differently because there's disincentives to that? Am I being unfair here on American sports, I guess is what I'm driving at? No, it's, obviously it's a very different market. Um, after spending nearly a decade in the, in the U.S. and being entrenched in all the major sports there, it is a different market. You know, it's a – it's a capitalist market with a socialist sports model at the heart of it, what it is, uh, which is, you know, if you are, it was very binary at one point. Now they're changing it, you know, particularly things like the NBA, the worst team got the best pick. Now it's a lottery uh, for the, you know, the bottom four or five teams and that. So they are changing, they're, they're stopping people from tanking, quote unquote, which is you probably followed in some of the sports and that, particularly the NBA. I'm uh, a Sixers fan. What can I say? I'm well familiar. Okay, so you've, you live through the process. So I think uh, it's one. It's a very different model to to to, to the US and that. Uh, but within that uh, closed league and set of practices, there's still inefficiencies, right? So this is the, be- the the thing that keeps us all up at night is and why you know I know we'll get onto it about new owners or new entry owners into the into the cap table of teams will believe that they can arbitrage value is that they believe that, you know, 
there's inefficiency in decision making, there's inefficiency in selection, there's inefficiency in game management, there's inefficiency in healthcare, there's inefficiency in play development. And even in a closed skill sport or a closed league sport like the NFL, et cetera, the, M- the NBA, there's opportunities to create arbitrage and value because you're right, the, you can end up in the first or second draft pick. Again, it's market forces. Do you, you, know, do you punt your pick to some a year down the line when you think you need it? But you've still got to get the most out of the talent. Now, the NBA is, I think it's, if you have two all-star players, it's like, you know, a 75% chance of, you know, making a conference final on that. So the talent is heavily indexed. So how do you get the best talent? Whereas sports like the NFL, you see the turnaround, the rebound of a three and 13, I know it's a 17 game season now into a 13 and three season. Take Doug Peterson. You're uh, in Philadelphia. We were part of that search process after Chip Kelly. So within Thank two you. years, they're in, they're in a super, <laughs> they're in a Super Bowl. And so there's certain sports that lend themselves to the mechanical shift than other ones. You knew sports, US sports a bit, but as you said, you went there before even even moving over there. But did you realize then that football, and we heard Todd Bailey and like Bali, for example, when they bought Chelsea saying there's a lot of things that European football or European soccer could learn from US sports. Did you realize that as well 10 years ago when you first went there, as different as the two worlds are, In a way, there's, there's both things that they can learn from each other. Like they hired you because they wanted to learn what you could bring from European football to U.S. sports. Did you also see some things that they were doing so well in the U.S. that could easily be imported in in European football? Yeah, I think I think it's great. I think it's a great point, and I think the guys are right. If you've if you've if you've seen if you've lived across different sports, you see different points of maturity of different practices. So I would say uh, in in European in in the in the American sports, and particularly the close close leagues like the NFL, it's the NBA obviously is more of a global global platform. That NHL obviously in Northern Europe has a presence in that, but a lot of the practices were were held within the league. Now you do have it in the NFL, and you know we mentioned a couple of people, the influence of the of the college game on the NFL, which is now becoming prevalent. Now, you know, for every Pete Carroll, that transition from USC to win the Super Bowl with Seattle, there's one or two other coaches who don't make it. Uh, but the practices within within the US, I found, were, you know, very, very professional and very, very dedicated. But no one had really horizon scanned what else is going on. Okay, so they kind of know about some certain things, but they're solving the problem through their own ecosystem when there was an opportunity to look outside. And that's on the field and off the field. So probably what you referenced with the new Chelsea owners was more indexed towards new commercial opportunities, more fan engagement, fan experiences, etc. And I think that's absolutely right. You know, that's the panacea for for all of these clubs, and we'll probably talk about it later, the American owners in this case coming into the market and saying, you know, if I own the Brooklyn Nets, and I'm just using them because it came to mind, and I want to take my team to play in Paris, it's yeah. it's not my decision, it's the NBA's decision, right? And I come as a package with that. But if I'm Manchester United and I want to take my team to Indonesia or to the US, it's my decision. And yeah. that uh, free market was part of the... The, if you've been an American sports owner living through that other model, and I won't reference what I think of it, but if you come into this new market, it's an amazing opportunity. Uh, and I think Manchester United have been a poster child of that, good and bad, uh, over the last 10 years. All right. I, th- I think this is this is a pretty side transition because Jules mentioned 
boldly and Bali um, before, and you know some of the things that they've said about they're twenty years behind, blah blah blah. For Gary Cook, back in the day, said some of the same things. So obviously, wasn't American, but had worked uh, in the U.S. My reaction was, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here. Um, I kind of gave Boldy McBally a hard time because I said, hang on a minute. You're talking about bringing these innovations from American sports. You're saying they're 20 years behind. But we've had American sports owners in the Premier League. Kroenke, the Glazers, the guys at Liverpool. We've had these guys for 15 years, for, for 10, 15 years. So presumably, if there were these brilliant innovations and inefficiencies to exploit, those guys with their U.S. major sports expertise would have found them. Um, but maybe not. I mean, was my initial gut assessment wrong on this one? Are there still more to be found? Because these owners have been here a long time. Yeah, I think there is. Uh, I think the uh, if you track two different stories, one is the Manchester United story of commercial growth, and one of Liverpool's sporting performance. They're two that both of them come. I think have got footprints of Americans' ways of working. All right. So the think about this as an entertainment asset and how do we sweat the asset, which is probably the Manchester United paradigm. And then the paradigm of the Red Sox, who are an incredibly successful team, uh, and bringing that, you know, through Michael Edwards and his group of people into the team and how did they drive performance? That was in a very American, for me, business plan. So I, I would sort of push back a little bit that they brought practice in that have brought commercial and sporting success into two big teams. Question is, is what's the next paradigm? All right, where is the paradigm shift again? And again, I, I'm not 100% sure. We know there's gold in them hills, but we don't know whether we got the tools yet to find them. So basically, we're talking Joe's nearly a decade in the States where, you know, he's worked with dozens and dozens of franchises yeah, in different sports, sports yeah, exactly. um, from MLS to the NFL, Atlanta Falcons, the NBA, yeah. Major League Baseball, the NHL. Um, but you can tell, right? You can tell from his accent. Yeah. The guy is a mank. Yeah. He's a mank boy who goes around the world and he wants to come back, right? He's been in, he's been in basically these foreign countries we call... United States and West London, Chelsea, different environment. Yeah. He he wants to go home. And he knows he has a skill set of understanding not just the two different business models, but at a time when the Premier League now has I think it's you know more than half the owners are are American or people who've done a lot of business in, in, in the US or um, that skill set I think becomes becomes more valuable. Definitely. And, and also, when you've been moving from one organization to another, because that's, that's what you do as a consultant, you maybe stay six months, maybe a year maximum, but you don't really feel that you're fully part of the franchise or the organization because you've just arrived to do a job that they've asked you to do. Maybe you want to be more settled and maybe you want to have more responsibilities and staying for longer to build something or go and get more successes. And that's why you went flat out and you asked them. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a fair question. I, I think everything's for certain times in your life. And that, you know, I had a wonderful experience of you know two projects uh, in in the Premier League, and that, and then you know, it evolves. It's back to curiosity. You know, I uh, 
I I had a curiosity and an interest about the the global landscape of sport. Okay, you know how does this? How do you get success in the NFL? How do you get NBA? What are the differences? What are the similarities in that really? And you know, you know, with the greatest respect inside a club every day, there's a little bit of stairway to heaven. Okay, here's another transfer window. Here's another coach. We're going to bring him up, and then he's going to you know down. Here's a set of players. So like, there's a there's a time and a space for it. Uh, and my, my time and space is gone for that. What I'm really curious now is is the next level of how do you build organizations, both from a operational footprint, but also the the use of capital to grow the opportunities to the next level again. That that's personally what we as a business, you know, forty percent of our business is now engaged with the institutional capital and private equity firms who are curious about how they create help teams, franchises, leagues, new leagues create value. As, as the market changes. You're obviously from the north of England. Who did you, who did you, who did, well, first of all, I'm assuming you were a football fan when you were a kid. Were you actually a supporter of a club and do you still see yourself that way today? Or is this impossible because you have to work for many different clubs? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So I, I uh, uh, so I am obviously from Manchester, a great giveaway. Uh, grew up as a Manchester United <laughs> fan. Uh, I always say there was no Man City back then. Uh, so I didn't really have much choice. Uh, as it pertains to now, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very agnostic in that, you know, we, we, we move a lot across a number of sports and other teams and I'm in pursuit of the people who want to get better and they be, I become a fan of them projects, to be honest with you, uh, whether they're a client of ours or not, or the people who've got in, in pursuit of something that's great. They're the ones that I sort of gravitate towards now, but I think, uh, you know, as you start to have children and uh, they ask you what team you support, I think then it's going to get a bit more live, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but no, but it's 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 relevant because when sorry, so this is this is my thing in general with globalization of sports and how people become fans and whatever. I mean, Jules, you're from Paris. You're yeah. a Paris Saint Germain fan, yeah. also because you and the club are roughly the same age with yeah. his long history. Um, but when you were a kid. Uh, Manchester United were not good. When you were a kid, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, this is pre-Fergie, right? This is, all right, they weren't getting relegated like in the 70s, but this was a club which had a lot of fans, big history, blah, blah, blah. And so today you get the sense that, especially as the game globalized around the world, people become fans of the clubs who they see on television and who they see winning. Right, a lot of people my age outside England are Liverpool fans because they remember Liverpool winning European Cups in the eighties, and that next generation now in the nineties they remember great United teams. I, what I'm driving at is, you became a United fan when United were not good. I mean, they're still big, but not good, right? Um, how how important is that? How important is is winning? To attracting fans, or if not winning, giving the appearance of success, or in terms of serving your fans, keeping them happy, keeping them coming back. Is there another way to make fans feel like they're part of something, uh, feel like they want to love their team, spend money on their team, follow their team from Indonesia or Paraguay or wherever, and be a part of it without winning every year? Yeah, listen, I think I think winning solves a lot of problems commercially brand wise etc but there's only one team who can win every year right in every in every major league and so it's like how close are you to winning 
and how compelling is your story? I think that was the history of it. I think one of the things that, you know, I've, I've seen and been in North America on a day-to-day basis has given me this exposure. There's now a new set of fans coming through that. Hey, I, I live in New York, but I'm a Lamar Jackson fan, right? So I don't really follow a team. I actually follow a player. You know, the NBA's probably got that sort of generation. And I think you'll, whether, whether it crosses over to the European market, but I think the next generation of fans, they'll follow players more than they'll follow clubs, which is a challenge for the, for the clubs because how do you manage both worlds? Okay, how do you manage the order of association that's created with a 100-year brand like Manchester United or, or a Real Madrid and that, and marry that with a young individual who's – we're all living in the attention economy – there's so many things that pull us on in different in different directions. Like, how do I create the aura of association around my franchise? It's probably trying to marry the star player with the with the franchise. And if I don't, if I'm not winning, then maybe they'll follow the star player to the next club. Like, I think this is a new a new challenge that we we certainly see with some of our clients as they think about the the evolution and the new commercial opportunities. It's like, how do you man- manage them two things together? But with success you know, keeps Pandora's box shut in pretty much every industry and, and certainly in sport and certainly in football. Mike, what, what we were preparing for the show, I, I read a few things and you were involved somehow in the Eric Ten Hag arrival to Manchester United? Yeah, listen, I, I, won't, I won't go uh, out of respect to the clients and I, I wouldn't go into the detail of it, but let's just start with where any club should be as they think about the future. You know, the one of the... Two things in, in my experience of hiring leadership people, and you can put a coach into that experience and that, is you know, taking the time to understand like the mistakes you've made, understanding the opportunities that are sitting in front of you, and how do you thread the needle on what's required for the future? You know, so you referenced coaches before. I remember being in the process to hire uh, Carlo Ancelotti, the average age of the team, I think at the time was twenty nine point five. They were built to built to finish, as they'd say in the NFL, Gaps. Mm. Uh, this was a, t- a roster that was built to finish. And he was the guy who was, who was the average age of the AC Milan team was 31, right? Uh, and they would always sort of be there competitive in the top four, but also certainly in the quarterfinals, plus of the Champions League. And that. So solving the problem uh, via your hires is obviously the goal. The other thing that people invariably miss out on and underestimate is market forces. At the end of the day, Liverpool ended up with a coach with uh, Jurgen Klopp because he leaves in April, uh, Borussia Dortmund, pretty unexpected, one could argue. He becomes available. He sits out the summer. Brennan Rodgers leaves his position in the October and he's a, there's a very small market of potential people who could do that job. Great for Liverpool to do it. I think Manchester United were in, this, in, in the same age. Sometimes market forces and availability or lack of availability speaks to it. But I give Manchester United tremendous credit for taking the time from an ownership at a board level down uh, to decide the direction that they wanted to go and then be brave enough to take that decision because it's easy to do the work, it's harder to make the decision. When you were, when you were mentioning how you hire or when you fire a coach or whatever, I think those super talented players that you mentioned, the one who have that winning mentality in them, they found you out if you're not at the right level as a coach. And, you know, I, I played, I was a really good footballer when I was a kid. I was not good enough to make it at the top. But if I go and take this United team or the City team for training one day and I've prepared my stress session, I go in after two seconds, they say, who is this clown? Because they would know instantly that I'm not good enough for them. 
And I think for me, the danger when you must hire a coach, whoever you are, whatever level you are, is that if the guy is not good enough, your players, especially the main one or the leaders in that dressing room, will see it straight away and they find you out. And then it's, it's over before you even finished. You're always trying to solve for the quality of the group and the moment the group of players are in. I think that's it the same in any major sport. But, you know, I, I used to, uh, every transfer winner when I was involved in a team in a day, I'd, I'd find the top five or six players and I would say to him, you know, collectively, individually, you know, we're going to go into the market, we're not talking about players, we're not talking about positions, but give me the top three to five characteristics. If we, if you see a new player walk into that dressing room, locker room, whatever the term is, they're like, what do you want out of them players? for you to feel like this is a project that's going forward, this is a club that's going forward. And they would talk through it. Now, that becomes then your glasses in the opticians of lens that you sharpen. So when we go to a player in Italy or in France or Spain, and you're carrying the top six players with you because what you're trying to do is make them top six players, seven players, and not seven top players, eight players and that. So understanding kind of where the culture of the business is now and then picking for that solution, I think is... I think is really important. But to your point, you know, Arsene Wenger used to say this, all top players want to see other top players come into the team so long as it's not in their position, yeah. right? And uh, I think you're, there's always room at the top for, for a lot of quality as long as there's it's, it's planned effectively. All top players want to see other top players play with them. And what would those players say to you when you ask them what, what character do you want to see coming through the door in the summer? Would it be like, I want an arrogant guy and someone would say, I want a chill guy? Was it, was it as specific as that? Or they want winners, they want this, they want pedigrees, they want, what would they say? Yeah, I think if you've got the spine of your team that's consistent and they've lived through it, you know, one of the, the great traits of successful teams like Golden State Warriors, they keep the jazz band together and therefore yeah. they're living through experiences, right? So they, okay, they, they might win a title, they might go to game seven and lose the title the following year. But they're aggregating these set of experience. They're your best barometer, in my experience, because they're telling you, hey, we fell at this final hurdle. What was the thing that was missing? And it might be just consistency. It might be a mentality thing. It might be a character thing. You, you just never know what they're, they're going to do. The, the key is not to lead them into it. Hey, I think we need players with higher character. Yeah, I, I agree with yeah. you. You never really know, right? But I think it's in making players and certainly the top players feel a part of the co-creation of the culture is critical for success. And then as a management team, along with a coach and the ownership is your job to solve the problem. Because back to what we talked about earlier, at the top, they come motivated. Our job is not to demotivate them. How do I demotivate them? One of the levers is bringing in players who are not necessarily less ability, but less mentality. And therefore, you force the top players to to feel that this is this is not going forward anymore. And all of a sudden, in times lastly, on times of change, in times of trouble, it's never your second tier talent that leave first. It's your top tier talent, and you see that in sports like the NBA, where the player power now is huge. Where if they don't feel like the team and the franchise wants to win, where they got two, three, four, five years left on the deal, they're coming in and saying, "I want to move." So your job is how do I keep this jazz band together of the top talent and add to it strategically as we go forward? So it's interesting, and this is a final point for me, what you mentioned there, and, and I think you mentioned Arsene Wenger before. Years ago when, when I wrote my book with, with Gianluca Vialli, Wenger explained that when he arrived at Arsenal, 
he saw all these older players, most of them uh, British or, or Irish, and it's obviously Adams and Keown and Winterburn and whatever. And he said, oh, my God, all these veteran players, nobody knows who I am. How do I get them over on side? We can't. I've talked to David Dean. I can't just sell them all, get rid of them, and bring in a bunch of guys I like. I have to win them over. And one of the, the levers he pulled was, he essentially says he pulled two levers. He said one is he looked to see how much money they made, and he saw that compared to what players on the continent, players elsewhere were going, these guys, because many of them had been at the club for so long, they were really underpaid. Um, and he said, look, I will get you, I'll reward you, I'll get you all new contracts. And if you follow me, I'm also going to show you how to be good professionals and how you can continue your career into your mid-30s, which I think, other than Adams, they pretty much all did. Um, and it's that kind of it's that kind of thinking, I think, that, that you're talking about there, Mike, right? So finding the lever with, when you arrive in, you need to win them over, you need to get buy-in from the players, and what the lever to pull at one club or in one team situation might not be the lever to pull at a different team situation. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a great I think it's a great story that you know the, the best coaches are the ones you know you mentioned Carl and Charlotte before they've got the ability and the confidence to suspend judgment about the way they think the world should be and meet the problem where it is or meet the opportunity where there is. Whether it's I remember Carlo telling me about it when he was at Juventus and he had. And he had Baggio, Roberto Baggio, and he and he was saying like, "Listen, the problem. I I came from a Rigosaki mentality that this is the only way to play, and then I have Baggio, and because I'm I've got a, a certain fixed mindset back to mentality, I can't get him to play in this certain way, and he leaves right. And uh, he said it was a lesson for me. Like you, you've got top talent, it's your job as a coach to work it out, not their job. It's your job, right? So." This, whatever that lever is, uh, you know, whether it's a system style of play, I remember Carlo telling me about, you know, we we wrote this in the book together that we did with a guy, Chris Brady, who's a super talented guy. And uh, he talked about the the system with the Christmas tree. And he sort of talked about, you know, Pelo being moving positions and Seedorf and Rui Costa and and, uh, Kaka. And he got them in the in the room. He said, "Like there's four of you here. You're all world class players, but there's only three positions. Like you kind of work it out, right?" And it's that confidence as a coach to suspend your own judgment, to be not in a fixed mindset, to go forward with it and find the solution. And I think you know that the the, the coaches that have longevity and sustained success are the ones that are comfortable with themselves, and that they've got enough EQ, like you talked about, Arsene Menger to find the thing that's important for them to drive the lever change. Is Carlo Ancelotti the nicest guy in football? Uh, I've seen him get mad. Very mad. <laughs> <laughs> sure. uh, uh, so, uh, but I, you know, I think just to use Carlo, you know, Carlo is, a, is you, you will, I think the sport of football in Europe won't appreciate what he's did and who he is until he's left. Uh, but I would say, uh, you know, he's a tremendous ambassador for the sport Never mind the club he works with. No. No, I agree. We're a massive fans. We are big fans. You're not going to get an argument yeah. from us there. And, and on the EQ piece that you just mentioned and, and the meeting somebody where they are, I know you need to respect your client vis-a-vis Ten Hag, but I'll just speak for myself here. Um, I did not think 
he was going to do so well because I saw him as somebody who was rigid, who succeeded in a certain environment, um, playing a certain way at Ajax. And yet, where he had a whole structure of strong people around him and whatever. And I didn't think he had that at United. And yet, what we've seen, he's been a very good man-manager. He's made very difficult decisions, brave decisions, witness Cristiano. I think he certainly tweaked the way he plays on the field relative to the way they played at Ajax. And I think this speaks to some of those values um, about meeting the team where they are that you spoke about earlier, Mike. So, there. I said it, not you. <laughs> I agree. Thank you. Jules, I thought it was a different conversation. That's what we're yeah. trying to bring you Definitely. with the Gab and Jules uh, Meets podcast. Um, somebody who really is under the skin, who's making those big decisions that ultimately are are kind of what drives the, the narrative. And yeah. I felt like I learned a lot also about the eternal kind of compare and contrast U.S. sports versus European Definitely. sports. Fascinating conversation, really. And again, we talked a lot about managers players sometimes a bit of sporting directors so need some countries more than others but rarely about people like him like Mike Ford who is a huge part of the success or not of your club and I think to have his insight on the game and on sports in general both in Europe and in the US was really fascinating so for more conversations like that of course among the ones we've done in the past some guy named Slatan Ibrahimovic yeah. uh, Victor Montagliani who yeah. was the well, first one the CONCACAF president big job by the way being 2026 uh, World Cup um, we've had Sammy Kadira, yeah, Branchini, Super Agent Giovanni Branchini. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, there's lots of good content, and a lot of it is evergreen content. So if you like this one, go back and check out the other ones. And thank you for spending your time with us.